0: shapes and influences every aspect of our lives today and we're only beginning to scratch the surface of understanding how it will radically
1: change the way we live and work in the future. Coming up... The industry automation would probably be the most impactful in terms of how we transform the, uh, with the help of 5G. The vehicle communications, the autonomous vehicles, th- those can still be done with some levels of just even the 4G capabilities. But the re, re, reinventing the way automation happens on the factory floor would be where 5G would see its biggest benefits.
0: You're listening to the Future Rhythmic podcast with Michael Hamesworth, a Nokia original series. Network slicing. 4G Wireless provided something of a similar feature, carve out a piece of the network infrastructure so it looks like a completely separate wireless provider. That led to the explosion of low-cost mobile virtual network operators providing consumers with dirt cheap cell phone service. For insight into what's next, lab leader and Nokia Bell Labs director Marina Totten joined us. She began by explaining that 5G takes this network slicing idea to a whole new level.
1: So far, when we talk about uh, network slicing in the 4G world, we don't uh, talk about getting service guarantees. We just talk mostly about connectivity. Um, In the 5G era, when we talk about network slicing, it's taking the network infrastructure and creating virtualized um, uh, networks on top of the existing common physical infrastructure, but in a way that allows us to be able to provide guarantees for different types of performance metrics, most especially from a latency perspective, to be able to guarantee those kinds of service parameters is what a network slice allows you to do. And it's not just the connectivity, it is also the uh, functions, the virtual network functions that are now becoming more softwareized in the 5G world. So it's the connectivity of both the virtualized infrastructure as well as the physical infrastructure that comes together to provide that end-to-end service
0: in a slice. I see network slicing sliced into three key use case categories, enhanced mobile broadband, a massive machine type communications, and ultra reliable low latency communications. You referenced that, that that's one of the major differences between what we've seen already versus what 5G will provide us. Uh, but let's start right at the top who is enhanced mobile broadband for? What's an example use case as you see it?
1: We can think about services that require more um, high bandwidth connections. So getting video delivery services, things like that where the end-to-end latency or the jitter in the latency is not as critical. It's mostly the bandwidth and a lot of the stuff can be handled at the endpoints in the in the devices themselves. And in those cases, it's the The EMBB service is the one that's most appropriate. Um, URLLC or the ultra-reliable low latency will be more for... Um, machine-to-machine communications, as well as for calls that are used in order to be able to do things that you, for example, you're communicating with a machine, human-to-machine interaction, where you want to have the interactivity happen with a guaranteed latency, uh, or applications where we have AR, VR types of applications, or mixed reality applications, where the human is interacting with uh, augmentation that requires the same level of interactivity and the, the, uh, the, it's more the interactive communications piece that requires this ultra-reliable low latency communication. So it, it's different from EMBB, but EMBB is more on the bandwidth and the connectivity aspect.
0: Then give me more insight into massive machine type communications and what kind of use cases we would see out of that.
1: Think of a factory floor where you may have a lot of sensors and you're trying to monitor the overall um, environment uh, for different kinds of um, temperature, humidity, whatever else you might want to monitor in that environment. Um, It could be go go from that sensor level data all the way to robots communicating with each other and collaborating uh, together to achieve a specific task. So... The uh, machine-to-machine communication could range from anything from uh, sensors to c- going to a, a server, collecting all of this information and processing it, to uh, two different robots working together and collaborating on a given task.
0: This is true Industry 4.0 stuff we're talking about here.
1: What I understand Industry 4.0 would be is more than just just, just simple, plain uh you know automation kind of functions that's already happening in the industry this would be more where you can actually reconfigure and one example that i have seen uh mentioned in the industry for auto use cases is where you have a factory flow configured to do uh, uh some function but then you want to be able to based upon uh logistics or some other information that you have about what the demands are to be able to re-customize your factory floor to uh, to do a different set of tasks and do it in a way that um, it allows you to be able to re-optimize the the setup of the factory uh, the configuration of the specific functions that are being done in order to meet the new updated inventory requirements that are coming in or whatever needs to be uh, met in terms of the logistics of what needs to be manufactured and so on so there's a little bit more of the automation but it's also the dynamicity with which that automation can happen where you can completely reconfigure a factory floor to do a completely different task from the primary task that it was originally set up for. And that requires a lot more of planning of how your uh, the the radio network will be within the factory floor, be able to dynamically update uh, the radio connectivity, make sure you have the right uh, kinds of bandwidth and latency connect, uh, performance across the factory floor. So it's a little bit more dynamic and more responsive to be able to really do so-called just-in-time logistics and just-in-time manufacturing, those kinds of concepts. We've talked about it a lot, but being able to automate the factory to be able to meet those is where I believe Industry 4.0 would go.
0: It also strikes me that massive machine-type communications such as this this is the bulk of the big advance. Sure, enhanced mobile broadband is super sexy for uh, things like video and, and video games. And the ultra-reliable low-latency communications that also comes with 5G is the kind of thing that we'll see in autonomous vehicles and things of that nature. And that's also super sexy. But the, the bulk of of the benefit of 5G comes from exactly what you've just described.
1: Yeah, I think the, the industry automation would probably be the most impactful in terms of how we transform the uh, with the help of 5G. Um, the vehicle communications, the autonomous vehicles, the, those can still be done with some levels of just even the 4G capabilities. Um, but the re, re, reinventing the way automation happens on the factory floor would be where 5G would see its biggest benefits.
0: So what are the biggest difficulties that need to be overcome to make that possible?
1: Of course, the radio technologies have to be uh, available uh, and optimized for the kind of uh, environment in which you are deploying these uh, networks. Um, But it is more than just the the radio, or the radio head, the radio domain alone. It's also looking at what are some of the the security functions. What are some of the, um, the authentication and all of those other capabilities that need to be added on to be able to make this uh, um, uh, these services possible and trustworthy? That's one big issue, the security. Um, the other aspect is also if you want to get um, more out of this networks, more out of the uh, out of the investment that we're making in 5G, we want to be able to create. Uh, a variation in the types of services. So here's a simple example would be uh, an example of a mining environment. You want to do uh, sort of a pit to port automation of uh, of a mine. You may have certain services that are everyday services like monitoring of personnel and so on. But at some point when there is a problem within the mine, you want to be able to very quickly uh, switch from Everyday information gathering, sensing kind of functionality to apply the bandwidth and the connectivity and the, the latency requirements towards, say, a teleoperation uh, function. And and that would be a much high value service that is added because the teleoperation will be brought in when you need to remotely be able to control some aspect of the mine, which in a Daily setting may not have, may be automated on its own. There's a problem. You need to fix that. So before the entire uh, pit to port automation gets stuck uh, because of one particular part of the the automation process not working, and you end up using teleoperation, what is needed is the ability to re-optimize the network or reassign bandwidth to different services in such a way that you can actually prioritize these high value services at at the right time in an on-demand fashion so that you can actually do and this requires the orchestration of that network so it really requires the um the radio network the backhaul network the applications all of them to be able to dynamically get reconfigured in order to meet that need so i would say security and orchestration of the end-to-end network that's deployed in the factory floor or the mine would be essential in order to be able to switch between uh, different capabilities that are important at different times of the operation of the mine.
0: And as we've talked in the past, um, the security component to this conversation is paramount for Industry 4.0. And artificial intelligence, and perhaps more accurately machine learning, is going to play a critical role in keeping an eye on that network and ensuring it's secure. Do we have the the, the backbone already? Do we have the, the built-in understanding as to how to deploy that effectively already within the telecommunications industry? Or do CSPs need to be trained and, and taught uh, about all of these issues in the first place? Where are we in that understanding of the true value of 5G?
1: So it depends upon when we talk about machine learning within a factory floor, right? Because some of the machine learning that is needed on a factory floor is also sometimes uh, domain-specific knowledge. And most of the time, those domains that are doing the automation would have that machine learning already in place. And there is conversations about using concepts like transfer learning, where if you have uh, a certain type of robots that are operating in a one-factory floor, uh, the learnings from that uh, environment can then be transferred to... um, to a different system because you just have the the, the right abstractions or the right um, representation of the data that's being sent so that you can actually do that. And this is something which is much more domain-specific. Now, if you look at CSPs, that goes into overall the 5G network that we talk about that you have your CSPs that are are responsible for. In those environments, machine learning is absolutely essential because if you take um, a service request that comes in um, and you want to take it, Think of it as a simple service level agreement for a specific service that comes to you as an operator now being able to take that service level agreement and let's say your endpoints are one one end is the radio network and then the other part is the cloud and those are the two endpoints on which the service terminates um you would require the service to go through the radio network uh, the backhaul uh, the transport network as well as a cloud infrastructure where you're hosting these virtual functions so to be able to know how best to uh, allocate these resources in each of these domains, to decompose those service-specific SLAs and map them into the appropriate configuration commands that need to go into each of those network domains, to be able to auto-scale the virtual network functions that are deployed in the cloud infrastructure in all of those areas without having machine learning, the operator who is managing this network would be left at like um you know, a a huge combination of uh, options to to optimize against, and it would just not be a humanly feasible task for them to be able to set up these 5G networks. So um, machine learning is crucial uh, to be embedded right into the architecture of this uh, 5G network so that we can actually make the right decisions. And there's also a lot of learning. So you could start out the machine learning uh, process first by pre-populating with certain rules and rule-based engines to start with. But then eventually as we collect more data and as we run and operate these networks, we can actually continuously learn um, and update those rules and update those uh, decisions that are being made so that you can eventually end up in a well-oiled automated network that we could set up. And so automation without machine learning is just not possible at all because it's a much complex system that requires machine learning.
0: And I think you've touched on a a bunch of different issues, including how network slicing streamlines networks. The existing systems, the way they're set up, the way they provision uh, for customers and meet those service level agreement requirements uh, is very unwieldy and 5G and network slicing, it goes about ensuring that the people who are on any given network or the machines that are on any given network have a right to be there because there's a lot of bouncing back and forth in and out of the system that goes on And if we used existing architecture, as we see with 4G, we simply wouldn't have that kind of streamlined flexibility.
1: Yep, yep. So so basically you would have sensors. So so when we talk about slicing, there's an entire life cycle to a slice. So it doesn't mean that the slice is always on, right? You have slices that may be created for some sets of sensors, but they may not be active at a given time. They would be dormant, as you said. Um, But then that slice would be provisioned. May not be used, or it would not be activated, but they would be provisioned so that when there is an event that happens um, that requires these sensors to turn on, we don't have any delay in terms of being able to collect the information from those sensors. So there's the, the if you look at the overall life cycle of a slice, there is the the um, the configuration of the slice piece, and then there is the activation of the slice piece. So yes, these slices will get come on, on and off dynamically depending upon the need because you still have a fixed infrastructure and it's very important to be able to make sure you can multiplex all these services on this fixed infrastructure because the the big uh, advantage of 5G that I see is it's no longer going to be throw bandwidth at the problem and we solve it, right? It's going to be how do we maximally leverage our infrastructure or optimally use our infrastructure to multiplex all these different types of services that you know, are not continuously sending data, but rather required to send data with a specific set of performance requirements, but may, they may be short-lived. But you want to be able to, especially on the radio side, be able to optimize the usage of the physical layer capacity in the best way possible. So yes, yeah, you would need that ability to turn on and off uh, to make these 5G services become more useful and dynamic.
0: Autonomous vehicles and healthcare seem like the most obvious use cases for ultra-reliable, low-latency communications, but where else do you see this need for this virtually instantaneous back and forth?
1: People talk about robotic surgery and things like that, but I I would say that in the case of the mobile network, I can see the virtual RAN. The cloudified RAN is one of the clear use cases for why we need uh, ultra-reliable, low-latency. But also, once you start to augment human beings with more, uh, machines that are, um, connected to you. So basically, you're no longer just a human, but you're an augmented human who has these superpowers to be able to, uh, connect to another, um, say, so for a simple example that I always use is that memory or compute is something that a human is sort of lacking, but being able to have that speed with which you can access your memory or compute in a cloud or some kind of a cloud that follows you around and having that really uh, uh, minimal latency and high reliability so that it almost looks like it's an extension of your brain, that the cloud that follows with you is kind of an extension of your brain, is a good way to augment the human to be able to address the tasks at hand uh, in a way that is actually Make, makes the human more capable than just the biological human being that we have today. So I could see any any such application that would require the human to be able to make decisions with all the information at hand. Um, being able to access a cloud for that information would require these types of um, low latency and ultra-reliability.
0: And while we may have to wait for 6G before we plug our brains directly into the cloud, I suppose you're talking about augmented reality, AR glasses, and things like that.
1: Yeah, uh, uh, Google uh, uh, AR glasses, or even when you, you know, whatever you see to be able to overlay information on top of what you're seeing, all of those things can be done today even before 6G comes.
0: And so, with that in mind, that seems to be very consumer facing, but back to industry 4.0, I can imagine AR technologies. Would have a tremendous application in Industry 4.0.
1: Yes. Um, so, for example, I mean, one one simple example that I've considered is that oftentimes when you see these people who are sitting on uh, utility poles, or uh, you know, they're trying to fix things, fix problems in the uh, connectivity of, that they need to reconnect after an outage, for example, after a storm or something. Um, oftentimes, they don't really have much. Uh, information that they could use to be able to know what lines are connected where or, you know, what's happening with the topology or whatever they're doing on those um, transformers that they're going to set up or, in you know, all of those things. Sometimes it's useful to know, you know, um, have overlaid information on top of it or even in a factory flow when you're dealing with a very complex piece of machinery to be able to have overlaid information even simple things as manuals that allow you to be able to um know what needs to be done and as it's kind of like an augmentation of your ability to have a, a piece of paper open that tells you what the instruction manual is to be able to deal with that so so even in those simple tasks you can see how an overlaid set of information in in very um Let's say difficult circumstances, like while well, you're on a utility pole or you're in the middle of a huge machine setup, it's helpful to have that augmentation to make the the task of the human much easier and more more easy to to accomplish the task with safety and speed.
0: So you're telling me that men will no longer have an excuse for not reading the instructions or getting the directions. <laughs>
1: Yes, it should be there when they get to get, get to do the task. I would get my IKEA furniture done sooner.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Let's come back to the very beginning with enhanced mobile broadband. You mentioned video as an example, but I suppose uh, Google Stadia is a prime example of the benefit of five G in being able to provide. Uh, an ultra high speed responsive video game experience where all of the processing is taking place on the edge cloud. It's not taking place on the user's individual screen.
1: Correct. So, so yeah, so the game, when you talk about video games, I mean, it depends upon the type of video games we are referring to. And Stadia is a good example where having that low latency is becomes very crucial. So I I hear all kinds of complaints from the kids in the neighborhood. They say that like, oh, Stadia doesn't do very well anymore. I don't like it anymore. And it's really because of the, the interactivity that has somehow been compromised with the 4G network. So uh, it's a clear example of where latency is important from a video gaming perspective.
0: And I fear, as a geek myself, that they launched Stadia before 5G was really a thing, and so my fear is that we're going to see an entire consumer segment say, oh, I I tried this thing, it doesn't really work, I'm not going to give it a shot again, and this all was launched in the 4G era, not 5G.
1: Correct. It's an interesting point because I've had lots of people ask me questions, just just run-of-the-mill family and others ask me, so what do you think 5G will do for me that it doesn't already achieve in 4G? And, and I think as an end consumer, um, we're still looking for what that end consumer applications will be for 5G. And the fact that Stadia didn't do well says that from an entertainment perspective, certainly there's value for 5G. But would that really be the big business case? Um, I don't think so. It will mostly be in the industrial segment, but now as you start to see industrial segments start to pick up 5g and as AR, VR, and your, I also think maybe sometimes the experiences that you have in your home theater systems could be enhanced, but, but would they need the same level of ultra reliable low latency that we expect in the factory floor? Probably not except for those games that are hosted on the edge cloud. But yeah, it's kind of like a, it's, It is a little bit unfortunate that we had Stadia come out sooner than 5G, but had Stadia come after 5G was deployed and people experienced the value that 5G brings to entertainment, we may have had even more interesting applications that could have come up. But, well, I I think we can also correct for it, but that would be one of the applications we would do with 5G is the video gaming.
0: So what are the greatest opportunities for monetizing network slicing in 5G based upon everything we've talked about?
1: There are lots of lo- large industrial segments that could benefit from um, from the automation aspects, right? I mean, things like we talked about mines. Um, uh, there's lots of mines that are yet not yet automated. Uh, there is agricultural sectors that could be used. Uh, there are examples where you're creating um, you know focused farming that's happening within like warehouse settings where you do continuous monitoring and and do things where you're actually wanting to um, you know maybe automate a lot of things that that you do within the within the farming practices. So all of those things could benefit a lot from 5G, um, but I think most likely I would say it's within the factory floor would be the one, one of the biggest ones. And if security problems can be fixed, I would also say that the healthcare sector would be another one. The only thing that I think would prevent the healthcare sector from going with the 5G uh, advances would be primarily the concerns of privacy and security. And um, we have some solutions that we have been investigating as to how to make uh, 5G secure enough to be able to support healthcare applications. But a lot of it also depends upon the device, the end devices that are part of this ecosystem. And how do we make sure that these end devices have the right security credentials to be able to send in the data when it comes to healthcare systems. In the case of a factory flow, you're somewhat in a closed system. So you sort of know what where the devices are located and who's using those devices and where they are placed, it's a little bit more contained environment. So I think the first monetization of 5G would happen in the factory floor and the, the in those kinds of applications first before they get into the healthcare segment.
0: I wonder if we come back to your family and friends who are asking you about 5G, if there's an opportunity in there that we really haven't discussed yet. What about new opportunities for non-telco companies who are focused on subscribers uh, to retain customers and use mobile as an exclusive service? Like for example, you know, how long before Snapchat mobile becomes a thing? If Walmart can succeed in keeping its customers coming back to their stores because they've got a Walmart mobile account and that gives them special abilities or sales or what have you, because they're in that ecosystem, why not companies trying to offer added value over their competitors and retain their customers in the process? What do you think of the idea of Snapchat mobile, Facebook mobile, that sort of thing?
1: Hmm. So I'm not much of a user of <laughs> Facebook. Uh, so. Um...
0: Well, I'll give you an example. Snapchat um, has... 40 million more subscribers than the world's biggest cell phone company, AT&T. AT&T pulls in $170 billion a year in revenue. Snapchat brings in $1 billion in revenue. And it's got competition from TikTok and all these other types of news services. Whereas if Snapchat said, you know what? The best way to retain our customers is to make them customers of other things, whereby if... You subscribe to say Snapchat Mobile, you're going to get a discount on your mobile service compared to AT and T. We're going to give you um, filters that only you get to use because you're a Snapchat Mobile customer, and anybody who sees you using that filter is going to ask for it, and you're going to say, "Hey, you have to sign up for Snapchat Mobile if you want that service as well."
1: It depends upon how the CSPs actually allow them to be able to carry this traffic. It's not just a Wi-Fi network. This is the the, the 5G network we're talking about, right? It requires the ability to be able to use other 5G technologies beyond just Wi-Fi when we talk about Snapchat mobile, right? So I'm a little bit confused about the question, but who owns the spectrum here?
0: Well, that's the thing is that that would be owned by the CSP and this would be a revenue generating opportunity, much like we have with 4G and you've got name brand cellular companies and they have their own discount brand. Maybe companies that never were in this space get into the discount mobile service world as well. And you've raised an interesting point. Will CSPs be willing to risk cannibalizing their existing customer base for the volume sales that they would get by opening up 5g and network slicing to companies that traditionally don't consider themselves mobile companies
1: yeah, so that, that's a big question for the CSPs to decide, right? Where do they see themselves in this new landscape where you could have these kind of um, you know, disruptive operators that come in? Um, and and I, I hope they don't. I mean, if CSPs plan to be in the business in the long term, they have enough competition from cloud vendors that are coming in. I hope that they would be a little bit more careful because at the end of the day, Spectrum is the resource that they own, right? That's that's like the single biggest asset that they bring towards the entire telco segment is that that's their piece that they own. Um, I hope they're smarter about how they use the spectrum and how they engage with other uh, um, third party providers and others who want to be able to use the spectrum to be able to spend other services. So it's an interesting question to ask, where would uh, CSPs end up with 5G and how would they plan on monetizing it, especially on the end consumer space? It's not very clear if they are thinking about it right now, but certainly an issue that they need to see where is the value that comes, right? One. Secondly, the other value that the CSPs can offer, I believe, is also the fact that they are typically you tend to trust them more. If there's something that they could be uh, positioning themselves as like a a broker of information, a broker of personalization, that would be another way in which they could uh, create value add on top of just Plain spectrum uh, that they have available. So it'll be interesting to see how the 5G market will evolve in the end consumer space.
0: It sounds like what you're suggesting is that the telecommunications space um, generally as a culture has a reluctance to risk uh, opening itself up to cannibalization. But at the same time, it, it sounds like you're also saying that there's a need for CSPs to get into that cloud space in a way that they never did before because if edge cloud is a key function of network slicing then providing your customers with cloud services yourself as opposed to turning to an amazon web services or what have you that edge cloud experience is something that csps could provide as a new value-added service for their customers who have strong slas yeah i
1: i think they should but i i I think that CSPs should start viewing 5G um, in in a way that how could they innovate on their monetization models, right? How do do they innovate their business models? Because I don't think um, this plain subscription-based monetization that they have, it's a great model, it's worked for them all along, but I do think that they need to start thinking about how would they get more of in terms of, and slicing gives them that opportunity, right, to be able to really create, customized, differentiated services for uh, different individuals. And I was just watching this commercial recently where Verizon says that every family is different and so you create a different package for every family. It's not just one package for all families, whether you like it or not, because different, you have a demographic of a family where you have adults and you have children who have very different needs and very different ways of communication. So I do think five offers the CSPs the opportunity to start to say that maybe we need to rethink our business from just connectivity to higher value services. The question you bring up about the edge cloud, um, I mean, you're seeing all these announcements where CSPs are asking the Amazons of the world to actually host some of their cloud services. Um, But at the end of the day, when you talk about the, the radio network, you do need to have your edge cloud much further into the edge of the networks rather than where you have today but then again you know cloud vendors could also get into that space but if they ever do build the edge cloud they should really consider what other applications by my fear about them not fear but like concern that i have about the edge cloud being sent off to other cloud vendors they are losing a part of the game because that's where you really can add high value applications right and For example, partnering with Google uh, Stadia to be able to host Edge Cloud where they can actually have these Stadia applications run and give them the kinds of guarantees they need. That would be the kind of model I would probably propose the CSP should go after uh, in order not to lose the revenue in the long run, because otherwise they will become more and more reduced to just a utility company, which is providing connectivity. And it's sad that they if they don't consider that option.
0: Marina Totten is the lab leader for end-to-end network automation and security and a 20-year veteran of Nokia Bell Labs. She joined us from New Jersey. See the future. Listen to what's next. Read about world-changing ideas. All by visiting futurhythmic.com. The future Rhythmic Podcast with Michael Hainsworth is a Nokia Original Series.